Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good people from around the world who want to make a difference. Engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. The only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode, and I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. Mike and I would like to start today's show out by acknowledging the tragedy that's happening on the east coast of Texas. Hurricane Harvey has decimated not just Houston, but over 50 counties in southeast Texas. We personally here at MBI Studios made donations to the American Red Cross and the Humane Society to try to throw our support at the victims of Hurricane Harvey. And of course, our thoughts and prayers are with everyone who's been affected by this terrible tragedy. And please, those of you who are listening right now, there are a lot of ways that you can help. If you're in the Texas area, they're still, I believe, asking for people with boats to help. They need food, clothing, supplies. Tens of thousands of people have lost their homes and all of their belongings, including someone that I know very well and you all have heard from on this show. This spring, when I went to Lubbock, Texas, I went to watch Mercedes, Ashley, and Rudy graduate from Texas Tech University School of Law, and they were the team that was working with Allison at the Innocence Project of Texas. Well, one of those three, Rudy's family, is from the Houston area, and his family's home was actually featured in a news article, and that home has six feet of standing water in it, and his family had to be evacuated by boat. This storm is real, and it is tragic. And please do whatever you can to help Southeast Texas rebuild. Yeah, and don't forget that a lot of these people don't actually live in a floodplain and don't have flood insurance. And that means that everything they've worked for their entire life is just gone. And the only way they have any chance of recouping any of the losses that they've suffered is through personal donations and the federal government. And we all know how quickly and efficiently that works. So please, as always, let's bind together and help support the people of Southeast Texas. And also, let's not forget the people in Southern Louisiana. Houston has gotten most of the press coverage here, but this storm has affected a very wide range of people in a huge geographic area. So do whatever you can do to throw your support that way and make sure that if you're donating money, that it's to a reputable source because there are a lot of scams out there. And now with all that being said, let's go ahead and get into this week's Friday follow-up. Before we get into your questions, Mike, I've got a couple of housekeeping issues that I want to let everyone know about. First of all, 
Shane Yoder with PutThemInASong.com has actually created a truth and justice ringtone. So if that's something you're interested in having, you can support Shane and all of his work for the show. Either go to iTunes for iPhones, or I believe it's called Tunes, T-U-U-N-E-S, for Android devices. Or you can go right to Shane's website, PutThemInASong.com, and go to the downloads page. And right there, you can download the ringtones for your phone. Also, this week, I've had several emails from people trying to buy Truth and Justice merch and said that our website is down. Well, I checked with Merch Labs, our company that sells all of the t-shirts and sweatshirts and all that stuff, and the website is not down, but they had bought a forwarding domain, truthandjusticeapparel.com, and that domain expired. But all that domain did was forward you to the actual shop site. The actual address for the merchandise shop site is truthandjustice.merchlabs.com. That's truthandjustice.merchlabs.com. And so if you were looking for coffee mugs or t-shirts, tank tops, hoodies, whatever you were looking for, you can still go right to that website and get it. And hopefully that link will be updated on our website sometime very soon. So you can just click the shop link from the truthandjusticepod.com website. Other than that, that's all I have for housekeeping. So Mike, you can take it away. Okay, first things first. I want to cover something from last week's follow-up that we might have got wrong. That was when we were discussing the oath of confidentiality that clergymen make in order to protect people's private information. Yeah, as it turns out, couldn't have been more wrong about that. Well, at least you've got the decency to own up to it. Yeah, I suppose. But man, I was, I mean, really, it was, I was so very wrong. So I had said in the follow-up last week that I didn't think it was likely that a clergy member would be calling in the tip based on something that someone had confessed to them because I thought that it was illegal for clergy members to do that. And I also lumped therapists and counselors and I don't remember who else I said. Was it lawyers too? Yeah, lawyers too. It is true with lawyers. Lawyers do have a confidentiality. Um, but I lumped everybody in and said that there was these laws that forbade them from sharing information that was told to them in confidence, which I've discovered, I think, is from me watching too much Law & Order. <laughs> yeah. That's like every episode of Law & Order is, you know, they're trying to get a, a therapist or a counselor or a priest to tell them, you know, what happened with someone or something someone said, and they're just, I can't do it, and they're allowed to do that. So I was wrong about that, and I've had several people point out why and share lots of articles. There's some great discussions with, like, hundreds of comments going on on the fan page about it. But from the best I can tell, this is the deal. So in most churches, or I shouldn't say most churches, but in a lot of churches, there's no requirement to keep things confidential. And in fact, there is a duty to report if they have information that someone is being hurt or is in danger, or I believe even if someone has hurt someone, if they confess that, that they have a duty to report it. From what I was told by a Catholic priest that messaged me, the Catholic religion is a little bit differently, where it's not a law by the government saying that they can't share information that was shared with them in a confessional. That's actually a church rule. They could be, like, excommunicated for breaking the privacy privileges that exist within a confessional. But that being said, I'm also getting information that Catholic priests are now required to report, based on church rules, any allegations of abuse. The I guess the short answer is, I don't really know exactly what the deal is. I do know that it is not illegal for a therapist or counselor or a clergy member to share information that they got if somebody confessed that to them. It's, yeah. it's not illegal from the government. There are maybe some rules within certain churches that to say that they shouldn't do it, and they're afforded that right because of their First Amendment rights with the Constitution. So it's not that the government is saying you can't share that. 
It's that they are saying we can't share that because of our religious rules and the government saying, well, we grant you the right to follow your religious rules. That's the best that I understand it. But the bottom line is uh, when I said that that was illegal, I was I was wrong. I was 100 percent wrong. I couldn't even like twist that argument like into, well, I was kind of right because I was just dead wrong. Sure. And and in fact, I think that the person that had sent that email in had messaged, and I want to point out that they they had said, or somebody had emailed in and said, you should really research this stuff more before you make statements like that. But please understand, these Friday follow-ups, on purpose, in order to keep the conversation flowing and organic, I have no idea what Mike's going to ask me when we sit down. So when he asks me something and I'm thinking about something off the cuff, that's exactly what's happening. I don't prepare for these because we found that if we prepare for them, then these follow-ups sound really bad and scripted. Scripted and corny. Yeah. yeah. So like right now, I have no idea what Mike's about to ask me next. So what's next, Mike? Okay, as everybody knows, last week's episode was about the Marcellus Williams case. And so we have a couple of questions here from listener Stacy about that. She wants to know, do we know why the knife was originally not allowed to be tested? And that was during the original trial for Marcellus Williams. And she says, I assume every request has to be signed off on. Who denied that request? Also, is there a way to find out if there were any other similar murders after the murder of Felicia Gale? Okay, to answer the first question as far as the, the DNA testing on the knife, uh, if memory serves in 2001, which was when the trial originally occurred, Marcellus Williams' defense team requested, they, they filed a motion to have DNA testing done on the knife that was fought by the prosecutor and denied by the judge. Now, I'm not 100% positive about that, so we'll have to look that up. You, you, that'll be some homework for all of you guys. But, uh, Mike, have you done any research on it? Does that sound about right? Yeah, it definitely sounds right from the reading I've done. Okay, so yeah, that, that's what I thought. So his defense wanted the DNA on the knife tested in 2001, and that was the, so the person that would have denied that, Stacy would have been ultimately the judge. So just like any other motion, the defense files a motion, the prosecution opposes it, and then a judge decides, so they would be the tiebreaker. So it, it sounds to me like the judge is the one who denied that motion. As far as any other similar murders, we do know about the Deborah McLean murder, and off the top of my head, I don't remember if it was before or after, I do know that it was only three weeks apart from the murder of Felicia Gale, uh, and that was the one that we talked about on the show. I mean, she was it was almost identical, similar build, similar features, age was almost identical, Stabbed multiple times, murder weapon found in her, used a knife from her own kitchen. I mean, these murders were not just similar. They were almost identical, uh, and they were just three weeks apart. So I'm not sure if that one was before or after. I can't remember that off the top of my head. Uh, do you know, Mike, if it was before or after? I'm pretty sure it was before. I, th- I think so, too. I think it was before. So I don't know if any happened after, but we do know that just in a very short geographic distance away, in only three weeks, I believe before the murder, was the murder of Deborah McLean. It was, again, almost identical in M.O. and signature. Also, another question was, when was Marcellus Williams' cellmate first incarcerated? And this would be the jailhouse snitch that we read about. To be honest, I'm not sure about that. I mean, this was a county jail. It wasn't a prison. Uh, so that's usually temporary confinement when waiting for trial. Most of the time are like misdemeanor offenses. Yeah. Um, but typically, people aren't going to be in a county jail for more. I mean, it can happen. You can get sentenced to a year in the county jail. Uh, but usually you're talking, you know, from days to, you know, three months or so. But I, I really don't know. I don't know when he went in there. I just know that he was there at the same time as Marcellus Williams. And according to Williams' defense team, they have records showing that he spoke with Williams' uh, ex-girlfriend while they were incarcerated together. And then they happened to be the two, uh, the only witnesses in this offense. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. 
everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, and then I want to read this to you from listener Ben. Ben writes to us, Bob, I think you claim that a male's DNA was under the victim's nails and it wasn't Marcellus Williams. I think this is wrong. I believe the state tested it back in 98, and only the victim's DNA was found, not a male's DNA. All right, so yeah, I actually went back and forth with Ben a little bit about this and promised him to look this up where I, where my source was. And the source was uh, for that one was foxnews.com, and it was according to DNA expert Greg Hampikian, who anybody that doesn't work in DNA has never probably heard of, but he's actually considered an expert in the field nationwide. Anybody that knows anything about DNA knows who Greg Hampikian is. Well, on the foxnews.com site, Hampikian was the source that was cited, saying that he was a DNA expert hired by the defense lawyers. And in that article, it says that hair samples and fingernails found at the crime scene don't match Williams' DNA either. So maybe I read that wrong, but my understanding was that there was a DNA test done of the fingernail clippings, and Williams was ruled out as a contributor. However, it hasn't been clearly stated that there was someone else's DNA found under the fingernails. So if I implied that there was a male's, or if I said that there was a male's DNA found under the fingernails and it wasn't Williams, uh, if I said that, then I, I misspoke because I don't think that's accurate. I'm, I'm just not sure there's not enough information here to gather that from. It was the knife, the murder weapon, where an unknown male's DNA was found that didn't match Marcellus Williams. What we do know is that Marcellus Williams' DNA wasn't found on anything anywhere on the crime scene. No fingerprints, no DNA, no hair, no nothing. So they may not have found a different male's DNA underneath the fingernails, but the DNA test done on the fingernails is extremely significant because, remember, there's no forensic evidence. So one of the major points, there was really two major points that put Marcellus Williams away and sentenced him to death, and that was the testimony of the jailhouse snitch and his ex-girlfriend. The ex-girlfriend testified that he said that he had killed Felicia Gale and that she had scratched all over his chest and she saw the scratch marks all over his chest. Well, the problem is, if that was true, and he had scratch marks on his chest, and the victim had scratched his chest, then her fingernails would be full of his skin cells and DNA. So that becomes extremely significant. Even if there's no foreign DNA under the fingernails, it completely impeaches her testimony, and it was her testimony that put him away and sentenced him to death. And before we break for the ad, there were a few people on social media asking about your changing view on the death penalty, and also what you think about jailhouse informants. So I figured we could talk about that just a little bit before we break for the ad. Yeah, I guess we'll start with the death penalty. And I, I guess we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on this because I've made my opinion on this very clear. But I have had a few people writing into me either on Twitter, on Facebook, and even email, really interested in the fact that my view on the death penalty has shifted so much over the last couple of years. And I, I think I articulated that pretty well in the last episode. Um, it's People just don't, and I was one of those people, 
don't want to believe that the system is as flawed as it is. And that, that to me is the most critical part. Like we know that there are occasionally convictions that get overturned, right? That, that, that maybe every once in a while the system gets it wrong. But what we don't want to believe is that the system can just as easy, in my opinion, our criminal justice system is set up in a way that you can just as easily get it wrong as you can get it right. And it happens all the time. We have no idea how often it happens. I mean, think about, I mean, all the way back to jury selection. We give both sides the opportunity to remove jurors from a jury with no reason with their peremptory strike. Like when you think about that, or their peremptory strikes because they get multiple. When you think about that, that's insane. I mean, the idea is that we're we're trying to get an unbiased group of our peers to hear the case, and you can re- you can remove as many people as you want to by cause. So if you can just tell the judge this person is, I believe they're racist or they're biased towards this for some reason, you certainly want to remove all kinds of any kind of bias from a jury pool. But peremptory strikes? I mean, I'm, I'm sure any prosecutor... It's funny because um, one of these questions I know on Twitter, someone had tagged me and Francie Hakes from the Best Case, Worst Case podcast with Jim Clemente, yeah. who's a prosecutor, a former prosecutor. And we, de- we have opposing views on the death penalty, too. Uh, we've had some off-the-air conversations together. I, and I love Francie to death. Um, uh, and she's fun. Me and Jim like to gang up on her sometimes if we all get in a conversation. But, I mean, she would probably argue and say why these peremptory strikes are so important. But to me, it's like you're literally saying, I want to remove this person from the jury for no good reason because I don't like the way they look or I don't like the way they're looking at my client. Uh, And what oftentimes happens is uh, the prosecutors are able to, and sometimes the defense too. Let's not forget about that. I mean, the defense can do it too. I mean, look at the O.J. Simpson case. But a prosecutor... Um, or defense attorney can can build like the perfect jury to get their verdict. And to me, that's saying like my case is not. I'm not going to prove this. You know, if, if there's overwhelming proof, they shouldn't worry about a jury convicting. But it's it's like oh well, in Marcellus Williams' case, there were seven seven African American potential jurors, and the prosecutor removed six of them with their peremptory strikes. And that's that is so messed up. And then of course we have Batson, which means shit. You know, the Batson uh, standard is that you you can't remove someone. Uh, you have to have a race neutral reason for removing somebody with a peremptory strike. I Meaning you don't have to have a good reason, but it can't be because of their race. But all they have to do on either side is explain that you have know, their challenged. We saw Ned Eight's case. We see Marcellus Williams' case where the the defense challenged why did they remove all these black jurors. And one after another, this you know, Dobbs and Aids case. Well, that person said that they knew a person by this name, so they were removed. Or in Marcellus Williams' case, in the jury selection, they actually used their race-neutral reason for removing a juror was because they worked at the post office. Uh, one of the reasons was because they looked like the defendant. I mean, and and judges just accept these. I mean, so so to me, the the whole. Batson standard is, is it doesn't do shit. It doesn't do anything. And so when you have a system, number one, that, that all the way back there to jury selection, where you're able to stack the deck one way or another. And I don't care. And again, Francie would would probably disagree with this. And I, I've heard her say she does. But in my opinion, the the prosecution has all the advantage 
They're not supposed to. According to the Constitution, people are innocent until proven guilty. But that's not true. I've sat in jury selection with a room full of potential jurors that all look at that defendant sitting over the table and will and will say, if you ask them, he's probably guilty because they trust police, they trust the prosecutors, they don't believe that the police would arrest someone, charge someone, and a prosecutor would bring someone to trial unless they had proof that they did it. So even though it's innocent until proven guilty, it's really not. Now, that climate is certainly changing a little bit. There's a lot less trust with the police now in certain segments of the community um, with, with a lot of the, the the racial biases and police brutality and the Black Lives Matter movement. That's certainly out there. But in the courtroom, I think still most people, the majority of people, believe that the prosecutors are the good guys and the cops are the good guys, and they probably are trying to convict a guilty person. So the defendants, the, the prosecution, I believe, has all the advantage. Uh, the jury selection process is jacked. Then you have things like Allen charges, which is where a jury can decide and, and write a letter to the judge and say, we're done, we're hung. We've done this for, in Ed, Edward Eight's case, two, three days, and we just we can't come up with a verdict. We are not going to be unanimous. Nobody is budging. We're done. And a judge can say, nope, go back until you have a verdict. You're, you're, you're forcing people to vote to send somebody away to convict somebody or acquit somebody against their conscience, against their good judgment. They heard all the evidence. They thought it through. They had discussions. And they said, this person is not guilty. And the judge says, you're wrong, is what he's saying. You know, when you come back and you've got, you know, six people that say guilty and six that say not guilty, he says six of you are wrong. You need to go back until all 12 of you can agree on the same thing. And so at that point, people are compromising. And when you have people compromise, literally think about that. People are compromising with someone else's life. I think he's innocent. I think he's guilty. Well, let's talk about it. Can't we say that he's guilty so we can go home? You hear stories over and over and over again about jurors changing their mind. In Ed Aid's case, we interviewed the jurors, and they told us they changed their mind because the judge made it clear they couldn't go home until they gave him a verdict. And so these are just some examples of how flawed our system is and how easy it is. Now, now on the other side of that is you know, somebody like O.J. Simpson. Somebody comes in with a lot of influence and a lot of money and can put together this dream team of lawyers. It's, it's unlikely that that person gets convicted. But other than that, especially the underprivileged and minorities, it's almost too easy to get a conviction. And Marcellus Williams is a perfect example of that. Edward Eights is a perfect example of that. Jesse Eldridge is a perfect example of that. They go into trial with zero evidence. I mean, you look at a clear-thinking individual and say, hey, this person killed her. How do you know? Well, he said he did. Well, were there fingerprints? Well, yeah, but not his. Was there blood? Yeah, but not, not his. Semen? Hair? Any of that? Yeah, none of that was his. But he said he did it. Okay. Like, it's insane to send somebody away to prison for the rest of their life, even for that. So then when you take that system that is that flawed, and I think we can all agree that sometimes some people are wrongfully convicted. I don't think anybody's going to argue with that. Even Francie Hakes wouldn't argue with that. That it does happen. In my opinion, if it can happen even once, if there's a possibility of even one person getting murdered by the state, by our government, state-sponsored murder for something they didn't do, if it can happen even once, then it should never fucking happen, ever. And we know that it's come close to happening. 
Look at Kerry Max Cook. How close did he come to being murdered by the state for something that he didn't do? Uh, in the, the West Memphis 3 case, look at Damian Eccles. How close he came to being murdered for something that he didn't do. And the list goes on and on. As of today, 156 different people have been exonerated from death row. That means that's 156 people that were sentenced to death that the state was trying to murder, and then they were later proven to be innocent. And everyone listening to the show right now, everyone listening to this knows how difficult it is to exonerate somebody. The odds are stacked completely in the prosecution's favor. It's less than 1% of cases that file for post-conviction relief actually get their conviction overturned. Less than 1%. Knowing that stat and knowing that 156 people would be dead had they not been exonerated tells us that we know for damn sure that there have been people murdered by the state through the death penalty for crimes that they didn't commit. And the idea that the death penalty is a deterrent is absolutely preposterous. Somebody that is going to commit a murder for whatever reason is going to commit that murder. They don't think, well, if I get caught, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison. And I don't think that anybody is equating, well, I'm okay with spending the rest of my life in prison, but I don't want to be sentenced to death. That is ridiculous to think that thought process is going through anyone's mind that's committing any kind of a murder. They're obviously not thinking about the consequences, or they don't care, or they don't believe they're ever going to get caught. They're no more afraid of the death penalty than they are afraid of life in prison. It's a ridiculous argument. So there, in my opinion, are zero pros to the death penalty, and I can point right now to at least 156 reasons as to why the death penalty should be abolished in our entire country. Woo, all right. And the the jailhouse snitches? Uh, the jailhouse snitches, so uh, again, I mentioned this before that as part of doing this work, I study wrongful convictions. And there's patterns, and one of the patterns in so many wrongful convictions is a jailhouse snitch of some kind. It happens all the damn time. Carrie Max Cook, Edward Ates, Marcellus Williams. It happens all the time, and it's a recipe for disaster. I, I, I don't think, and I believe there's actually legislation in Texas specifically that's working on jailhouse snitches, it's something to the extent that a jailhouse snitch's testimony can't be used in trial unless it can be corroborated with other evidence, something along those lines, which in that case, I think that that maybe jailhouse snitch testimony could come in. But it's a recipe for disaster. You have a person with nothing to lose and everything to gain in, in a jailhouse snitch. So you have a person that's locked up, that's facing some time for something, and it, they're just ripe to take a deal when when a prosecutor comes in or a police officer and says, hey, have you heard? It doesn't have to be nefarious. They don't have to come in and say, I want you to lie. All they have to do is come in and say, uh, I'm looking for information against, say, Edward Eights. And if you were to get any information about him that you could testify to, I could make you a deal in exchange for that information. It's just a setup for someone to make up testimony in order to save themselves. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've studied a lot of these cases, and I mean a lot, a lot that we don't talk about here, just just as kind of homework for myself. And the entire concept of, uh, you know, you don't snitch, snitches get stitches, total bullshit. I mean, I mean, yeah, you might get your ass beat for snitching, but what I found is there's very little honor amongst thieves because you see it all the time. There's always somebody willing to flip to save their own ass. They're not just going to go to the police. There is a culture, it seems, uh, amongst, I, I guess, criminals, I don't know what term to use, where they're not going to go to police and and tell on you. So, for example, if I knew you committed a crime, 
and the police came to me and said, hey, do you know who did this? I might say no. But if I knew that and I get in trouble and the police are like, hey, if you tell us who committed that crime, we'll let you off. You bet your ass. I mean, it was that dude right over there. And it happens all the time. Uh, so the idea that that criminals aren't going to snitch uh, is I think is complete BS. I think that they absolutely will if there's an incentive for them. If it's if it's save me or save you, uh, that we see it all the time. So I think jailhouse snitch testimony shouldn't be allowed. I do like, uh, and I wish I had it in front of me, but I believe it's a Texas legislation that requires jailhouse snitch testimony to be corroborated with other evidence. And in that case, I think it may be useful. Other than that, I think it's just a, a recipe for disaster. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. All right, and there was something I picked up off the fan page from listener Mitch about organizing our posts on the fan page. Yeah, I saw that post and it was a good idea. So what happens on Facebook, it, it happened, I mean, Facebook's got some weird algorithms anyway, but in the private groups or or any of the groups like the, the podcast fans page where all this discussion happens, anytime someone comments on a post, it bumps it to the top of the feed. So there might be a post from three months ago that ends up on the top when you're scrolling. And what this listener was saying is that people get confused. And so I th- what were they asking that when you make a post on the podcast fan page, the Truth and Justice podcast fans page, where all the discussion's happening? Right, to begin the post with the season slash episode number. Yeah, so like if you're talking about something from episode 326 to put, you know, the the first sentence, episode 326, uh, maybe colon, whatever, you know, that's what we started doing last season with the hashtags, too, to help us kind of track those things. But so I guess think about that if you're posting on the fan page to maybe put the subject episode number, whatever, at the beginning of your post. So it's easier for people, ourselves included, when we're preparing for the Friday follow-up, to track what each post is about. Yeah, that'd be a big help. All right, Bob, before we close the show, a few people had some thoughts on the Kenneth Ray Williams episode. And just to key everybody in, because the names are similar. So now we're back to Keow and Jesse's case. Uh, and these, I think you said, are about the Crime Stoppers tip. Yeah. From a few episodes back. Okay, just make sure people realize we're talking about two different cases now. We're back to Keow's case, Kenneth Ray Williams, Crime Stoppers tip. And what'd you have? Listener Candace has a theory about the Crime Stoppers tip for Kenneth Ray Williams being the killer as a purposeful misdirection. She says that it could have been triggered by guilt or remorse being on the anniversary date of Keow's murder, but the call was made to deflect any suspicion from the person who called. I guess I can see the train of thought there, but my issue with that is there was no reason to deflect attention away from anyone at that point because the case was closed. You know, the, 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 as far as the police were concerned, Jesse Eldridge did it. He had been arrested. He was in prison. Whoever this caller was, wasn't being looked at by the police. There was no reason for them to deflect any attention. So I still, and I don't want to keep rehashing the same thing over and over and over again, but I really believe that this caller believes that Kenneth Ray Williams was involved. And as I've said many times, it doesn't mean that he was, but I think that the caller believes that. I don't think it was for a vendetta. I don't think it was to deflect attention. It just seems too far-fetched when the case has been closed for as long as it had been when the call came in. Okay, and then also I've got a suggestion from listener Lee about it maybe being Troy who made the call. 
But I think you already covered this in your response to Candace. Well, what did they, as long as you have it there, what was the theory? Just that maybe Troy Eldridge had a guilty conscience and made the call to try and help out his brother. Uh, he says that maybe if it didn't work, that he had to stick with his lie. And he does acknowledge that it's a little far-fetched, but possible. Yeah, I think I think that accurately sums it up. That it, it's it's possible, but but yeah, unlikely, probably far fetched. I there's no way of knowing that. It seems like there was a lot of other ways that Troy Eldridge could have gotten out of this besides calling in a random Crime Stoppers tip and just vaguely saying that someone else did it. You know, it's not a, it's not going to be enough to redirect the police's attention. Right. And then one last thing here, Bob, listener Aaron wants to know where is Detective Watts today, and have you tried to reach out to him? Detective Watts is deceased. Um, so, you know, I was looking for him early on in the investigation. We did find out that he has passed away. So obviously not available for comment. Okay. That's going to do it for listener questions. Well, thanks everybody for writing in and thank you for all of your engagement support throughout this season. As we've mentioned, the season is coming to an end here, uh, in about a week and a half. And we're going to move on to our next case. You're going to hear all about that next case on Sunday's episode. And also this Sunday, we're going to talk to Jesse's attorney, Allison Clayton of the Innocence Project of Texas. The focus of this week's episode is going to be for Allison to update everyone on where Jesse's case is at legally and what we can expect moving forward. So make sure you tune into that on Sunday. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. All music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Thank you to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com for creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Stephanie McConnell, Sarah Mueller, and Tammy Kenimer. And as always, a big thank you to Desiree Dunn for printing the transcripts and mailing them off to Jesse every week. And last but not least, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending in those thought theories and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Please take advantage of our voicemail line and call in voicemails to 269-224-2833. You can like our Facebook page or you can follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Got it wrong, Bobby. Yeah, you're right. That sounds terrible. Mm-hmm. It's creepy. Mm-hmm. Mic drop. Bam. Good job. That was good. Yeah, I'm not, I think I'm gonna keep going. Right? Okay, right <laughs> Jeez, coming in hot and heavy there, Bob. <laughs> We're gonna make it a joke.
You like you just you just yelled at me on the podcast. <laughs> You're like yelling at me. Well, I wasn't yelling at you. I was just fired up. We're like really, only two people in the room. You were just like cussing at me and pointing at me, and screaming. <laughs> there was fire coming out of your fucking ears. You know that I point when I'm, you know, when I'm when I'm inspired. You yeah. know, yeah. That's you were you were literally like coming up out of your seat. You were just, <laughs> just so fired up. Don't like the death penalty. No, I don't either. Harry's actually. Harry's actually allowed me to grow a beard. Yeah, right. It's like such a manly razor that I started growing a beard after using it. <laughs> right, because that's I'll, that's probably a f- because that's like the old wives' tale is right. Is like yeah, if you shave, it's going to grow back thicker. Right. So like right. Harry's shave is so smooth that I now have a thick beard. That means go. That means that you're like you're like you're like indicating for me to start reading. Yeah, I uh, point my fingers and go. <laughs> both of them. Yeah. 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 You. You know you're a pointer. I am a pointer. You you you, po- you always point. You inform me of that in the death penalty segment. You know, yeah, that's right. That's right. I, okay, yeah, and, we're, and that's going to be on the bloopers here, so everyone will know. Uh, you also point. <laughs> you can't wh- talk. Listen, you can't talk about the bloopers in the bloopers. Okay. You know. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, it's like Fight Club. <laughs> like you can't. You don't it, talk about Fight Club. Right. You don't talk about the bloopers. Just assume that everybody knows. That they're that listening to they're the bloopers listening. right now. Like right now, so people just, are listening to the bloopers. Right. And they know they're the bloopers. And then and then like you say, like, we're in the bloopers. Right. It's upsetting. It's like Inception. Oh. A blooper within a blooper, maybe? No? Like, how do you mess up a blooper? I don't know. Well, you stage it. That's how you mess it up. <laughs> like, there we is just a way, did, There right? is a way to do it, yeah. <laughs> And you move on. And you move on. And you move on. And you move on. This is fucking stupid. I want to go to lunch. Sorry. Shit. I was just trying to have a little fun. Jeez. Someone woke up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. All right. Okay. I get it. Let's get we're, this going. We're in serious mode today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>